Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. We want to invite you to come celebrate Mother Seton's birthday at our first event in months. The party will be held on August 30th here at the Shrine. You can find more info at satanshrine.org. Now here's Father Ted. Today's gospel is about the church. Our Lord says that he's going to build one single church. He says he's going to use Peter as the foundation rock of that church. And he says he's going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom of that church, which is going to make him the prime minister of this kingdom, which is the church, as Jesus Christ is the king with Peter as his prime minister holding the keys, as was the case in the Old Testament Davidic kingdom. Nowadays, the church is not a very popular notion. So it's important for us to recall that it's something that God decided upon. And you cannot ignore the church without ignoring Jesus Christ. In many ways, it seems like the church is on hard times nowadays. You know, you, and it's not just the Catholic church with the scandals that have broken over the last several years or decades. But also just belonging to a distinct religious group itself, that very notion, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, is going through hard times. There was this study, religious study, that was done back in 2009, and it found that the persons who, or Christians specifically, without religious affiliation, so they don't belong to the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, the Pres- they're not Presbyterians, so they have no religious affiliation, the number of Christians with no religious affiliation, had doubled in the last two decades. And that's a pretty surprising number. You know, many people, we probably hear this all the time, they don't like the idea of the church. They prefer to go straight to God. They see religion, that's something bad, but spirituality is something good. So the church is unnecessary, but Jesus Christ is necessary. So you hear things such as, Love is about a relationship, not a religion. And they will go so far as to say that the religion actually gets in the way, it obstructs that relationship of love that we are all called to have with Jesus Christ. So we could find ourselves, or we could find other people at least, asking, you know, why do we need a church? Is it really necessary that we have a church with bishops and a pope and the sacraments and the indulgences and the saints in order to get to Jesus Christ? Why couldn't Jesus just do it without that stuff? But we would do well to ponder those words of St. Paul from the second reading today. His magnificent exclamation of wonder. Oh, the depth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgment, how unsearchable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Basically, St. Paul is saying that God has plans that go way over our head. So we might not understand why Jesus Christ decided to start the church. We might not have done it ourselves if we were Jesus Christ. But we're not Jesus Christ. We are not God. And he who is decided that we would get to him by being a member of his church, a member of his kingdom. 
So if we want to stay close to Christ, if we want to have union with God, we need to stay close to that church which he created, which he founded. There's this professor by the name of uh, Dr. Tim Gray. He teaches Bible studies. He's an exegete. Uh, he told the story about this mortgage um, professional that he, was, that he had and um, that he was working with. And this man had, was telling him that he had just this, he had left the church. And, you know, they engaged in a conversation and he explained that, you know, I was simply not being fed in the church. And then he asked the question, you know, isn't Jesus enough? Why do I need the church if I have Jesus Christ? And Dr. Gray, he responded by saying, that's a very good question. Now let me ask you another question. How can you say that you are loyal to the king, but you want nothing to do with his kingdom? How can you say that you would lay down your life for the king, that you love the king, but you despise and would never go near his kingdom? And the man had never thought of it in that light before. He was kind of taken off guard. But that's really the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. We're not dealing with two distinct entities. It's not like we're both Catholics and Christians. But being Christian should entail also being a member of the church of God. You can think about it in a different way. You know, we don't have lots of kings and kingdoms nowadays. But think about it in this way. The church is also known as the bride of Christ. It's a very common image that St. Paul uses in his letters. And it's something which also comes up in theology a lot. So Christ is to the church as a man is to his wife. They are united. They are one unity. You don't separate what God has put together. So if that's the case, if Christ is united to his church like a man to his wife, what happens when you reject the bride of Christ? What happens when you reject the church? Well, you, anybody who has a child who is married, just go ahead and try rejecting your children's spouse and see how your relationship with your children goes after that. It's not going to be a pleasant affair. There's a package deal. Dr. Gray, he told this other story about a, a friend of his wife's who was leaving the church. And he called this man and he, they started talking and he said, oh yes, my, uh, she's very worried about me, but it's okay, I'm, I'm doing fine actually. Because yeah, I'm leaving the church, but I still believe in Jesus Christ, so it's all okay. And so they decided to get together over coffee and to talk about it. And Dr. Gray said, um, he asked him, so you're still devoted to Jesus? And the man said, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let, let him go. So you can see there, lots of people will say yes to Jesus, but no to the church. And Dr. Gray continued, great, so you're devoted to Jesus. Now, what was the focus of Jesus' teaching? And the man started talking about love, and okay, that's true, Jesus did talk about love a lot. But the real center, the real heart of Jesus' teaching, like the thing Jesus talked about the most, was actually the kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, we were, actually for three weeks in a row, we were reading Matthew chapter 13 in the Sunday Gospels. And there are eight parables in Matthew chapter 13, and each and every single one of them is about the kingdom. The very first words of Jesus' public ministry that are recorded are, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he sent out the apostles to go preaching, he said, Preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
This was something that was front and center for the ministry of Jesus Christ, the kingdom. Very often we're good at answering this question, why did Jesus Christ die? Most of us could probably give a good reason for why Jesus Christ died. He died in order to save us from our sins. That's the principal reason he became man. That was something he couldn't do if he was not man. That's not the entirety of it. That's not the only reason he became man. What if somebody were to ask you, why did Jesus Christ live? How would we respond to that question? What answer would we give if that was question was put to us? Because it's clear from the Gospels that he had something more to do than simply die upon the cross. Or to simply die. You know, if we open up Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2, as soon as Jesus is born, Herod sends his soldiers to go kill him. So if the only thing that we needed from Jesus was his atoning blood, he could have died right then and there, and we would have been saved, or Jesus would have been saved a lot of trouble. But he doesn't. He evades them. He goes, he flees into Egypt. Okay, so maybe Jesus Christ needed to be a fully grown man in order to die for our sins. Great. His first homily in Nazareth, it goes over so well, they try to stone him. Rather, they try and throw him off a cliff at that point. Either way, they want to kill him. But he doesn't let them. He once again evades his would-be assassins. All right, so you could then say maybe he doesn't need to just be an adult. He also has to die in Jerusalem. He himself said that a prophet is supposed to die in Jerusalem. It's from the Old Testament. Okay, he goes to Jerusalem in John chapter 8, and he's preaching in front of the temple, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he is God. The people in the temple, they don't like that. They pick up stones to kill him, but he escapes them again. He's not ready to die yet. So he's constantly avoiding death and capture. If the only thing Jesus Christ had to do on earth was to die, it seems like he's procrastinating. But we know he had something more to do, something to accomplish before that death. He had to establish his church. He didn't just come to teach us. He didn't just come to heal people, his contemporaries. He didn't just come to die on the cross. This was the most important. But he also came to do something very important, essential, we would say, to establish a church that would be the boat of salvation for all of us. And for the saints, the church is something indispensable. You know, we get lost talking about the different, what the saints have said about the church. You know, St. Ignatius has these rules for thinking with the church. St. Robert Bellarmine has this treatise about the true church. But Mother Seton is another good example, like all the saints, of, of somebody who loved the church, somebody who found the church indispensable. Fulton Sheen said that there's something natural rather, when death approaches, the human heart speaks its words of love to those whom it holds closest and dearest. And so when Mother Seton's death approached, what words of love did she have for those who were closest and dearest to hers? Her dying words to her sisters of charity were, be daughters of the church. Be daughters of the church. That was what she wanted to leave as her legacy. It was just a reiteration of something she expressed during her life. She, she wrote, I thank God for having made me a child of his church. 
Being a member of the church is a gift that we should help other people to experience. Now at this point, we could ask ourselves a bunch of practical questions about, okay, how much do I love the church? How faithful am I to the church? You know, generic questions that we could often examine ourselves about. What is my relationship to the church? Do I support the church? Do I defend the church? But let's talk about something that's a little bit more applicable. Elections are coming up, November 3rd. Are we gonna to listen to what the church has to say when the time comes for us to vote? Are we gonna to adhere to the church's teachings when it comes to voting for a particular policy or candidate? Or are my allegiances to my political party stronger than my allegiances to the church? Who do I listen to more, the bishops or do I listen to my favorite news outlet? Who do I trust more? True, the church is not gonna ever tell us precisely who or what we're supposed to vote for, but it is very important for the church. Back in 1948, the communists were running in Italy against the Christian Democratic Party, and Pius XII felt so strongly about this election that he gave a special dispensation for all the cloistered monks and nuns to leave their monasteries to vote, lest the communists take over Italy. That's something we probably don't have to worry about nowadays. We don't have a lot of people in cloistered monasteries that are going to change the election. But it is a big deal. And it's true that, you know, neither of the candidates in any race of any level are going to be saints. It's not as if you can vote for the saintly man. It's not like you're voting for Jesus Christ or the devil. It's not that clear. Neither of the candidates is a saint. But the fact that they're both imperfect, the both individuals of any race are imperfect, does not mean they're the same thing. It's not as if, well, good people can disagree about this because they're both bad. There is a significant difference between candidates very often. Some issues are what the church calls non-negotiable. And we need to vote in accordance with those teachings of the church. But do we even know what the church says are non-negotiable issues? Do we even know what person it would be sinful for us to vote for? Because there is a sin of scandal or cooperation in evil if you vote in a particular way under certain, under certain circumstances. Like if you vote for somebody, for example, who says, I'm going to start the Holocaust. You can't say, well, I'm not going to start the Holocaust. He's going to do it. But I think he's good, so I'm going to vote for him. No, it's still sinful to vote for somebody who's going to start the Holocaust, even if you are not a, an immediate contributor to that, to that genocide. So there are certain principles we should be using on November 3rd. Are we going to look those up before November 3rd? Are we going to look up the U.S. Bishop's Catholic Voters Guide? Or EWTN put out one too. So in this Mass, where we give thanks to God for the gift of the Church, let's ask for that knowledge and that humility to adhere and adhere to the teachings of the Church, even when it comes to our voting, so that the Kingdom of Christ might be extended in our society.